This is an ABC podcast. Back in 2007, some fellow nerds and I got together because Apple had been dropping little hints that they were about to announce a combination of an iPod and a mobile phone. And there were all sorts of rumours swirling on the internet and there were graphical mock-ups, some quite delightful, like the old iPod with the, the click wheel, but it had numbers on it, like a rotary phone, and others more believable and other jokes flying around. And then Steve Jobs took to the stage at this big event and he famously declared they were going to launch three products. He said, we're going to launch a new iPod and a phone and a revolutionary internet browsing device. And we were like, iPod, whoa, phone, whoa, browsing device, ah. Oh. There was a bit of a flat, you can hear the crowd pulling back. And then he goes, this isn't just three products, this is one product combined, and it was the iPhone. It turns out the, the browsing device part of it was the most exciting bit, as we now know, because not just Apple, every single telecommunications business thrives on giving us the internet in our pocket. But back then it wasn't the case, we still had... Nokia's and all sorts that just let us play Snake and send a text message for 50 cents or whatever it used to cost. Anyway, we were we were early adopters, my mates and I. A couple of us got together, got into the sordid back channels of the internet and found out that we could order one from America long before they were due to come out in Australia and we had to set up a fake American address because they would only ship to people in America and then we had to pay someone to send it on to us. Then we had to get all proper tech code nerdy and break into the software to allow it to work in Australia. It was high stakes. If we got something wrong, if we'd done the wrong thing, it would have just bricked the whole thing, as they say, and would have become a very expensive paperweight. But it worked, and suddenly I was one of the very few people in Australia with that new product. I was an early adopter. Not these days. These days my phone's six years old or something. It's all cracked, you know. Time passes, novelty fades. I wonder, though, if you were a first adopter of something. Or a very late adopter. Wordle has turned a year old, the online word game that many people love to play. It took me quite a while to get around to that. These days I like to do it. It's spawned all sorts of other spin-offs. But we'll be talking about early adopting today on the Sammy J Snack Pack. Thank you to you if you were an early adopter of this podcast, which has been going strong for well over a year now. Or if you're a late adopter, welcome on board. It's great to have your company, and not just my company, but some very fabulous guests. Jimmy Reese joining us. Former Prime Minister Julia Gillard joining us to talk through that famous speech of hers ten years ago. And Dr Moira Junger will be joining us to talk about the secrets of a nap. How long should you nap for, or how short should you nap for? Keep listening, because you're going to find out on the Sammy J Snack Pack. Oh, look... Um Myself and my husband were probably, we'd say, late adopters of Wordle. We've only just sort of started doing it in the last month or two. I wanted to give my husband the credit for um, being an early adopter um, of a certain term. So um, we have young kids and sometimes the only chance you might get to uh, to do Wordle is um, when you're, when you're going to go and sit on the toilet. So he's um, sometimes he'll tell me I'm going to go and do that. He coined the term. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and uh, do a do turtle. <laughs> okay, let's wind the clock back ten years. Because if you were a parent or a grandparent back then, you'd probably be very familiar 
with the work of Jimmy Giggle, one half of Giggle and Hoot on the ABC. You would have spent many hours in his company. Fast forward a decade and Jimmy Giggle has reinvented himself as one of Australia's favourite comedians and entertainers. But even entertainers have petty gripes, small things that they would go into battle for. So, Jimmy Reese, what is the hill that you're prepared to die on today? Look, I, I, I come this morning with my gloves off. I'm perched on the hill, have a small army um, around me. Um, I've got my armour on. Um, I've even got some goggles just in case, you know, someone's got an umbrella that might poke my eyes out with an umbrella spoke because it is due to rain today. <laughs> I am... Uh, my grievance is that radio stations, yes, I'm looking at you, uh, should not have cameras. Oh! Radio stations, every radio station on earth. And look, I, would, I will admit, Sammy, that you are not the worst culprit here. Um, but in the radio sphere, every single radio station these days want to be a TV studio. They've got 400 cameras in there. There's, they've got like little screens in the background. It's, and you know what? It's radio. We're <laughs> there for audio only. Why do we want to be a television studio? I think I have to sign up to your, your army straight away. I'm surrounded by cameras now, but no one's ever told me how to turn them on, so I do very little video content. I know Virginia does in here, but you're absolutely right. Stay in your lane, radio. It's all about the beauty of words and thoughts, isn't it? That's it. That's it. And there's nothing worse than, I oh, look, the commercial radio stations are really, really the worst culprits of this. That They do these stunts, which are quite obviously visual and they just stand there explaining the whole thing on radio and they've got cameras everywhere and it's like you can just watch this later on our little vodcast thing on social media no it's it's audio only stick to the craft look now i agree with all of that but i do need to interrogate this further jimmy reese have you Mm -hmm. simply had the experience of turning up to a radio station unshaven you got a little bit of you know, Big Mac this sauce is, on your shirt, and, and suddenly they say, "Oh, and we're live streaming." <laughs> and this just, is absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's frustrating, you know. And you walk in there, and you're bombarded with cameras, and you think, "How do I look?" I didn't think I had to do my hair today. I didn't dress appropriately. Yes. Let alone some people who are actually in radio don't even do that anyway. So if you are consuming this later on on social media or whatever, it just looks like someone's rolled out of bed. It's four o'clock in the morning, which is probably earlier than that. Just get some hair and makeup in there if you're going to do it properly. Have you had to start asking, or, or your people start had to start asking, will this be recorded? <laughs> no, but I should. Yeah. You know when you get a when you get a, um, a like a radio interview. I've got a few radio interviews mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Um, yours is on the phone. That's fantastic. That's I'm it. sitting here in my pajamas. I've got coffee stains on my yes. uh, on my on my front. Uh, but they're like, I oh, will just send you a Zoom link. Oh. We'll send you a Zoom link for a radio station. No. No. The thing is, uh, Jimmy, I have actually got cameras on you. I had installed via mutual friends in your house. I've been watching you all morning. Are they through duck eyes? Yeah, yeah. That's it. Little duck. That little duck statue in the corner. Damn it. Quack, quack. (laughs) Jimmy, I completely agree. I'm not even going to allow any discussion into this. I think radio stations, it's all about trying to get content out there. I respect that. They need to do it. But provide hair and makeup and let people have a bit of dignity. That's it. Let let them have a bit of dignity. We want a hair and makeup department. (laughs) Jimmy Reese, we cannot let another conversation go without declaring the fact that I once tutored you in English for 12 months. Yes, this is very correct. We do this traditionally. I was speaking to my mum last night and she goes, oh, you're on Sammy J in the morning. I'll be listening. Uh, Hi, mum and dad. Hi, Um, mum. They're listening. Hi, mum. Hi, Judy. She she goes, do you remember when you first went to his house and we had the first tutoring session? I was like, oh, no, not really. He goes, he came to the door playing a harmonica. And... (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like me.
Yeah, and I charged her for it as well. What a piece of work. I was um, an early adopter, well, my family was, of bringing your own bags to the supermarket because we started in the late 90s, I reckon. Oh, my gosh, that's even before Tim Mitchell's hit song, Bring Your Cancer Bags, yeah. (laughs) And people would go, oh, that's a good idea. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, But late adoption, Mm -hmm. I didn't get a smartphone until... Like, I had a, an old schnockier mm-hmm. um, like, five years after smartphones had come out. And, I, you know, I could play Snake many years after people had ditched <laughs> well, that it, option. It's not as fun playing it on a touchscreen. You need those physical <laughs> buttons to enjoy Snake, Sarah. Exactly. <laughs> the Snack Pack. Okay, we turned the clock back 10 years for Jimmy Reese. Now let's turn the clock back 10 years once again. Because where were you when Prime Minister Julia Gillard delivered the misogyny speech? Well, if your name is Julia Gillard, the answer is at Parliament House in Canberra, standing at the dispatch box opposite Tony Abbott, who looked increasingly uncomfortable as his political rival eloquently tore him a new one. And in so doing, cemented that day in the history books. And one of... Those books is out now. It's called Not Now, Not Ever, featuring a series of reflections on that speech, curated and edited by none other than former Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Julia, welcome to the Snack Pack. Great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I had so many questions that I wanted to ask you about this speech, and then I discovered you've gone and answered them all already in the first chapter. It's almost like you've spent a long time talking about that day. <laughs> I have spent a lot of time talking about that day. I've been asked about it a lot. And so in the Not Now, Not Ever book, I do share my recollections of the day. But most of the book is, in fact, looking forward. You know, what what does uh, misogyny mean today? How does it happen today? How does it impact women's lives today? But most importantly, what can we do uh, to end it and clear it out of the way as an obstacle to women's lives and women's choices? You spoke as Prime Minister about the hope that it would be easy for the next female Prime Minister and the next one after that. Ten years on, do you think that is the case? I think some things are easier, definitely. And it might sound like a kind of humble thing to say, but I do believe we're having the right conversation now. I mean, when I was Prime Minister, the sort of fashionable political analysis was gender wasn't playing any role in my Prime Ministership, whereas now, 10 years later, I think people see gender, they understand when someone is being described in a sexist way and you know, they go out and they say, that's not right. I think it would be impossible uh, for anybody to receive the treatment I did without it becoming a huge political liability for the person who was conducting themselves in a sexist manner. So I think we see it all much more clearly. Uh, The Me Too movement, I think, has shone a light as well as the women's marches and so much of the May election was shaped by women's issues and women's voices. So some things have changed. Uh, But there are some things that have gone in the other direction. Social media can be very toxic for women. Around the world, we're seeing reversal of women's rights in many places, you know, girls thrown out of school in Afghanistan, the chaos around reproductive rights in the US, and the list goes on. So we've got to really keep up the activism and the forces for change. More to do. And that's very much what this book is focused on. Of course, the springboard was that day, 10 years and 
and two days ago. I know you haven't watched that speech back in full since delivering it, uh, Julia. I did watch it back myself recently, like so many others, and I was struck by just how normal the day seemed. You've got Swanee popping up to get some water, people interjecting. How did the regular rhythms of Parliament play into that moment? Because I understand the speech nearly didn't even happen. <laughs> the speech nearly didn't even happen, that's right. Look, at one level, it was just another parliamentary day and parliamentary days bring, you know, the raucous bit, question time, and everybody spends a bit of their mornings preparing for question time. Certainly as Prime Minister, I would do that every parliamentary day, get my head in the likely questions I was going to be asked, be ready to answer them. So that was the rhythm of the parliamentary day. The chamber is never a still and silent beast, you know, to some extent people always have to be moving around. Uh, you see uh, Anthony Albanese moving around uh, in, in the video. You can see that even right at the start. He shoots behind me. And that's because as manager of government business, he's required to keep moving around the chamber and keep everybody organised. So all of that was there. But there were some things that were quite different. I mean, instead of question time, Tony Abbott jumped up to immediately move a motion. Um, I walked over to the advisers box. I thought I should give the reply, but my advisers were, oh, normally you keep yourself out of this kind of opposition carry on, should you really involve yourself in it? But I decided to give the speech because I was sort of sick of all of the sexism. So, yes, there was a moment where, you know, sliding doors, the misogyny speech might not have been given, but it was. And I could tell it had landed very forcefully in the parliament. You can tell that by the way the opposition reacted. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. The uh, advisor recollects you actually saying you were sick of this shit. Uh, his words, is that uh, an accurate representation? Uh, that's a completely accurate representation. I was just trying to be more delicate well, on your yeah. show. We can handle it. What about 10 years ago today, though, Julia? How were you feeling two days after the speech? Did you have a sense that a decade later a book would be being published and you'd still be discussing it? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. Two days after, it was clear that media around the world were reporting the speech very differently to the way the Canberra Press Gallery had. I mean, they basically missed its significance um, as a sort of uh, feminist uh, intervention. They just reported the kind of micro-politics of the parliamentary day. So the worldwide reporting was starting to feed back into how the Canberra Press Gallery was feeling about it all. So I was watching that happen but no sense, zero sense, that we'd be talking about it a month later, let alone 10 years later. Ah, thanks for your company, my friends. I'm having a good day today. It's good. I feel alert. I feel awake, which is a far cry from 48 hours ago when I, I saw a couch at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. It was my own couch. I wasn't snooping or prowling. I wasn't anywhere I shouldn't be. And I thought, oh, I might just pop down and have a little nap. Just a cheeky afternoon nap. Woke up. 43 minutes later, feeling like I had been smacked in the head with a kettle. It was one of those naps where I genuinely did feel like I'd gone back in time 10 years. So what's the secret? What are the rules? I need to get better in this. Maybe you do too. Dr. Moira Junger is the CEO of the Sleep Foundation, which means she probably has a few tips for all of us. Moira, what is the secret to a cheeky nap? 
Well, it's all to do with the length of the nap so and, and how sleep-deprived you are before you have that nap. So if you have a short nap, if you sleep for less than 30 minutes, you're most likely to wake up out of light sleep, so stages one and two. But once you go beyond that 30-minute stage, and particularly if you're quite sleep-deprived, which you would be a lot of the time with your hours, you wake up out of deep sleep. And when you wake up out of deep sleep, you're very, very likely, mostly, you know, almost all the time, to feel really groggy. And it's called sleep inertia. You, you're inert. So you feel like you, you can't, you don't know what the day or week it is. You feel like you've been hit by the, you know, the, that- the walk on the head. So, hence why the, you know, the, the road safety messages around having short power naps is you don't want someone going over the side of the road having a nap and waking up out of deep sleep and feeling worse and being mm. more dangerous because you, you're actually probably better off not napping at all if you're going to have these long ones because you'll wake up. So short but short naps are really encouraged, particularly if you're sleep deprived and particularly if you're a shift worker. The really the art of napping could be the challenge for people just well, to see what works best for them. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, my body seems to have a natural clock on a, normally on good days. If I if I go for a nap or you know lie down somewhere, it'll just be maybe twelve or fourteen minutes, and, and I'll, I'll automatically wake up. And Perfect. it's amazing how much better yes. Yes. I will feel. How, how can oh. how can that short amount of sleep yeah. do any good at all? Oh well, just that, just refer, the the that little bit of rest for the the brain, where you actually go into different brain waves and you have a little bit of light sleep. It just you know it helps you actually restore. You have alertness, increases you know your just that, that lovely bit of restoration where you, you you buy yourself a bit of like two hours more alertness increases as you know it increases your performance, mm. increases your sort of your your, your clarity. So yeah, so that fourteen minutes it sounds like the sweet spot for you and. I would set an alarm for 20 minutes and then so you know that you're – because you probably take maybe five or more, yeah. probably ten to, to initiate sleep perhaps. Yep. And then and then we have a 10-minute or 14-minute sleep. So, yes, yeah, maybe the alarm's set for 30 minutes. So, Like if you've only slept for four hours a night before, if someone's on shift work or something, surely it is good to have like a two-hour sleep to catch up properly. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is different. It depends on what you're napping for and mm-hmm. what the reasons for your sleep deprivation are. So if you're napping all the time, despite you've had like four hours, full, you know, eight hours or seven hours of sleep, and you feel like you're napping all the time, that's that you probably need to get that checked out. The other thing is that napping is really supplementation. It's not really something you can do instead of having a big chunk of sleep. So you want a big chunk of sleep that's you know, probably in the order of, you know, six or seven hours or so. Mm-hmm. But maybe wait, but not, but waking up in that time, like we all wake up a little bit. It's really important for people not to really, you're not going to have this oblivion for six or seven or eight hours. You do wake up. It's normal to wake up. Um, but Sorry, can I pause you there? Sleep. That, that's yeah. really nice to hear because I don't think I've ever heard that properly yeah. said that I, I get anxious when <gasps> I wake up at two o'clock. Yes. And go, oh, man, I'm not doing it right. I'm, my life's ruined. Yes. I'm not doing it. I'm a no. loser. So I'm well, thanks for this. It's such a great opportunity that sleep is now. We now, you know, it's something we discuss on the radio because mm. a lot of people feel, in all my, you know, clinical years, years ago, like it's people think it's a problem. I mean, it is a problem to stay awake half yes. the night, of course, but but really important to realise that these sleep stages we're talking about, we go up and down throughout the night all the time and the sleep cycle takes about an hour and a half. Ah, well, maybe now we can all go and have a nice cheeky nap because we know the rules, but of course, make sure you don't do it in a radio studio because you might be being filmed. I've been Sammy J. You have been listening. I am grateful for that. Ross Kavanagh is my sound wizard pushing all the buttons alongside my beautiful ABC Melbourne breakfast family. You can tune in every weekday from 5.30 in the morning via the ABC Listen app or catch me back here for another Snack Pack next week. Have a good one. Wendy, are you a Wordle fan? I certainly am, yes. And who do you play Uh, with? Uh, I play with um, two of my sisters, mm-hmm. and the third one watches on. 
and she declares who who is the winner for the day. So we get more fun out of um, seeing how Pam gets on because Pam, we know Pam cheats. <laughs> what? Who's, who's yes. is Pam a sister or a friend? Uh, she's like a friend of one of the sisters on Facebook. And what does she do? Well, she puts up these quite unrealistic uh, results each day, and so we we sort of hang out for what how Pam got on. And and, uh, and what? So you think yes. Pam's going getting the answer and then and then faking it? Well, if you uh, well, I'm telling people how to cheat, but I mean you yeah. can get the results. Well, if of course you, you can. You, but you can if you use two different devices. You can struggle through on one and then put a, an unrealistic result on the other. Wendy in Bendigo, does Pam know that you know? No, she doesn't, no. Does Pam so, know that all of Melbourne now knows? <laughs> well, I've actually changed her name slightly. <laughs>